Welcome to We All Go a Little Mad Sometimes, a true crime and assorted oddities podcast with your host, Poncho, where I have a face for podcasts and a passion for true crime. So on the podcast today, we have <laughs> my son-in-law gave me this Bigfoot call. It's pretty funny. <laughs> anyway, we have, uh, hopefully we have a good show for everybody. We're going to carry on with uh, second chances with a really creepy individual from San Francisco uh, named David Carpenter and then we're going to get into the last um, edition of Tomb Raiders and uh, it's it's a one of the one of the big guys one of the heavy hitters so hopefully y'all enjoy it so let's get on with the show So we're going to get into second chances. I think everybody deserves a second chance. However, this one here is a doozy. Uh, we're going to be talking about David Carpenter, the trailside killer. He was born May the 6th, 1930, in San Francisco, California. He was born and raised in San Francisco. And uh, unfortunately, he was physically abused as a child by his alcoholic father and domineering mother. As a youngster, he developed a stutter. By the age of seven, it got so bad he couldn't even interact with the other children. He was forced to take ballet lessons and violin lessons, which made him even more of a target for the other kids. And on top of that, he became a bedwetter. So you'd think this poor young feller man has a tough go of things. No kid should be subject to that kind of abuse. Not that a boy doing ballet is a bad thing in today's world, but in 1937, things were a little bit different. But then he started to get strange and started doing strange things, and he seemed to enjoy torturing animals. And by the age of 17, he was incarcerated for a year for molesting two of his little cousins. He continued to molest children until he married in 1955. This union would produce three children. He supported his family by working 
for a photo print shop and as a salesman and was even involved with the uh, Coast Guard and was honorably discharged from that. So I guess he did a good job in the Coast Guard. Even though he was married, he continued to stalk women. Man, he's such a such a creepy looking guy. I'm, of course, I could be biased because I've read so much stuff about him and I have stacks of papers on him and all these things. But man, he's just a really creepy looking dude. So in 1960 or 61, I have conflicting years on that. He lured a woman into the woods, and I'm not sure how he how he happened to do this, being he's just such a creepy looking guy. And this all took place in the Presidio, the it's like the northern point of San Francisco where the the Golden Gate Bridge crosses. And at the time the Presidio was it was a military establishment essentially. But anyway, he was apparently friends with this woman and somehow or another lured her into the woods. And he wanted to have his way with her, and she wouldn't let him. So he started beating her with a hammer and tied her up with clothesline. And while all this was going on, it just so happened a military patrol officer got kind of suspicious. that He saw his car there and got suspicious and was kind of checking things out. And like I said, he had her tied up, and then he took his knife. And he was going to start stabbing her, stabbed her in the hand, and she was screaming for help. And a military patrol officer went and intervened. David Carpenter shot at the guy, and the guy shot back and hit him. You know, Carpenter instigated his gunfight and lost, which was a good thing for the victim. Uh, she survived the incident. Uh, she really would have been his first victim, uh, almost without a doubt. And uh, she later described the incident that his completely, his whole demeanor, everything changed about him. His his speech slowed and became deliberate. He, he, lost, um, he lost his stutter in total contrast to his usual way of, of speaking. And he seemed unduly angry for no reason. And like we've seen before in, these, in this series, you know, thank God for a nosy cop. Because he literally he saved that woman's life without a doubt. Uh, Carpenter would receive a 14-year sentence for this. And during this time, his wife, who had just given birth to the third child, after years of abuse with his temper and sexual appetite, divorced them. And I say good for her. So a psychiatrist that evaluated him while he was in prison said that he um, suffered from a sociopathic personality and he gave a wide range of accounts and stories for all his actions. Pretty much general BS. He just told them what they wanted to hear. And after serving uh, nine of the 14, he was released in 1970 and quickly remarried. And that didn't last long. And old creepy was at it again. He was trying to develop ways to meet women. Uh, the next thing he tried was he ran into a woman with his car he ran into her car with his car then he tried to abduct the woman and be mr creepy with her and she resisted and he stabbed her she was able to fight him off and get away in her car and he continued to target women until his arrest in modesto california in february 1970 so while he was incarcerated waiting for his trial, he befriended four other inmates and conspired to escape. 
they apparently were not good at it because they were quickly recaptured. And then he was sentenced to seven years in prison for kidnapping and robbery, but not for any sexual assaults, which makes absolutely no sense. On top of that, given his history, really made no sense. So even while Carpenter, Mr. Creepy, found ways to pass as a normal, productive citizen, he took classes in computer printing and got a degree in it from uh, California Trade School. Then he got a job as a typesetter instructor affiliated with the school, and he also took up hiking. As I said before, he was looking for ways to meet women. On August 20th, 1979, 44-year-old Eddie Kane's naked and violated body was discovered on a hiking trail in Mount Tamalpais State Park in San Francisco. Forensic experts state she was murdered execution style, shot in the head while kneeling. In March 1980, Barbara Schwartz, age 23, went hiking in the park. The next day, her body was found on a narrow, unpaved trail as she had been stabbed multiple times. At her crime scene, they had found a pair of prison-issued prescription glasses. And there was also a witness. The witness description was so far off the mark that it actually hurt the investigation. And unfortunately, I think um, 80% of the people that have been released from prison by like the uh, Innocence Project and all that, I think it's 80% were put in there by eyewitness accounts. So eyewitness accounts aren't always accurate. I don't know, I'm sure if I'm wrong on that, you all let me know. Anyway, this, this poor 23-year-old girl's body was found a few months later in October. A 26-year-old Ann Alderson went jogging around the outskirts of the park. She was found the next afternoon, also shot execution style. November 1980, uh, Shauna May, 25-year-old, did not show up to meet her lover at Point Reyes Park north of San Francisco. And two days later, her body was found along with another in a shallow grave. And that was the body of Diana O'Connell, 22-year-old, who disappeared while hiking a month earlier. Both women were shot execution style. And at the same time, they found this actually a few hours before they, they found the two girls. Two other victims were found at Point Reyes Park. Uh, Richard Stowers, 19, and 18-year-old Cynthia Moreland. Um, they had been missing since September and told friends of their plans to go hiking in the park. And again, both victims were shot execution style. And then the panic set in. The media had started to speculate that the trailside killer and the Zodiac were one and the same. If you're at all a true crime junkie, at any level, then you're familiar with the Zodiac. He killed seven people in the Bay Area in the late 60s, mostly by gunshot, as well as he played a cat and mouse game with the police and the media. And he appeared to be uh, well-educated and, and clever, sending messages and cryptic puzzles and letters and taunting the police and then he just kind of disappeared speculating that he had been jailed for some other crime and upon his release he'd started a new hobby so now enter the criminal profiler hey boys and girls this is rupert peterson 
and today we're discussing the criminal profile. The basic idea of a criminal profile is to acquire a body of information that revealed a common pattern for a general description of an unsub. Unsub. Let's let that be the word of the day. Can you say unsub? I like the way you say that. Unsub is a blended word. It's blended with two abbreviated words. It's short for unknown subject, unsub. So the basic idea of the criminal profile is to acquire a body of information that revealed a common pattern for a general description of an unsub in terms of habit, possible employment, marital status, mental state, and personality traits. Probing for an experiential assessment of a criminal from a series of crime scenes involved a detailed victimology, learning significant facts about the victim's life especially in the days and hours leading up to his or her death. Their movements were mapped and investigators study all of their personal communications for signals to where they may have crossed paths with a viable suspect. That's a criminal profile. Thanks, Mr. Peterson. We appreciate that. So famous profilers, Ray Hazelwood and John Douglas discussed this case and Douglas ended up going to uh, San Francisco. This little bit here I got is um, right from a piece that Catherine Ramblin wrote. And I don't know, I don't know where it came from. I just have it in my stack of papers here. But anyway, Douglas went out to San Francisco to examine the crime scene, the data and the case photos. And he said the killer would be familiar with the area, so a local man. And he was shy, reclusive, and may have a speech impediment. Contrary to what some local psychologists had decided, he would describe the offender as charming, sophisticated, and good-looking. Douglas thought he would be unsure of himself in social situations. He chose victims of opportunity rather than preferring a certain victim type. He thought that he was white and intelligent, blue-collar, and had spent time in jail, possibly. His MO was to approach from behind, if possible, and become aggressive to overwhelm the victim. He was like a spider waiting for a bug to fly into his web. He'd have a history of at least two of the three background indicators, fire starting, bedwetting, and cruelty to animals. Douglas also thought that he was probably in his 30s and had recently experienced some precipitating stressors. While he had committed rape before this series of murders, he had not killed before. And Douglas had been really specific about the speech impediment, and that drew a lot of doubt from the task force members. They wondered how he could know something like that, and Douglas explained that the secluded killing areas, the method of approach, and the fact that an offender did not approach his victims in social situations to lure them indicated some degree of shyness or shame. He believed it was due to a physical malady. Overpowering someone gave the killer a sense of compensation for his handicap. He has some kind of defect that really bothers him, he said. So while a profile was probably helpful, but it didn't really lead to a suspect per se, but it did give him an idea of who, the type of person they were looking for, I guess. And before they could even evaluate that, they had to have somebody, a suspect or someone in mind before they could compare 
that to the specific individual. So Douglas headed on back to Quantico, and in March of 1981, he struck again. Ellen Hansen and Stephen Hurdle, the students at California at Davis, had gone hiking in Henry Cal State Park near Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz, of course, is where Herbert Mullins and Ed Kemper both went off the rails. So anyway, they were the couple were confronted by a man. They were near observation deck, and they were confronted by this guy with a 38 pistol, telling the woman of his he had bad intentions, and he told her all about it. And she's like, nah, she refused. And Hurdle pleaded with the man to let them go, but the guy just he lifted up his gun and started shooting. He killed Hanson and injured Hurdle. And I guess, believing they were both dead, the gunman took off. And Hurdle actually was able to crawl for help, which is just absolutely incredible. Now, even though Hurdle was shot and, and he, was, he was hurt, um, but he was still able to give police a description. And it varied greatly from the eyewitness from the Barbara Schwartz case. But the M.O. was the same. So Hurdle recalled that he had uh, crooked yellow teeth. He was about 50, as well as a gold jacket with lettering on the back and a baseball cap. He spoke in quick, commanding sentences, which sounds like the way that Mr. Creepy spoke to his first victim. Other witnesses from the day recalled seeing a man fitting that description, leaving from the park in a little red uh, foreign car. Now, all of the other murders that happened were done with a 45, but this one was done with a 38, and the police desperately needed that gun. So they ran a uh, composite drawing in several newspapers, and four days later, a lady called and told police that a man matching that description had harassed her daughter, and he was being very inappropriate. But the cruise was 26 years earlier, so apparently he had (laughs) crooked yellow teeth for quite some time. Anyway, she recalled that he was the purser on the ship and had a bad stutter. He had signed her daughter's cruise book and said his name was David Carpenter. Police started working on it, but, you know, there's a lot of David Carpenters in the San Francisco area. Even though they were working on it, 1981, didn't have the computers, didn't have the internet. It, it takes a while. To, at that time, it took a long time to find people and to find find locations and anyway, which would have been a, a mountain of paperwork and legwork. In May 1981, Heather Skaggs had last been seen by her boyfriend. He was a resident of San Jose. He told police that she went to meet someone that she worked with to buy a car. His name was David Carpenter. And she had not been seen since and she hasn't returned. When Mr. Creepy talked to her, he insisted that she come alone. So when the police went to follow up on this of the young lady's disappearance, the police noticed when uh, Carpenter came to the door, that he had a very strong resemblance to the composite drawing of the trailside killer. They also noticed the small red foreign sports car in the driveway. So background check on this Mr. Creepy revealed um, his all of his felony arrest and his uh, general creepiness that has happened over the years, and he was taken into custody. Hartle and seven, uh, several, you know, Hartle was the shooting victim. And several other witnesses easily picked him out in the lineup. At his arraignment, he stuttered so bad he could barely spit out yes when the judge asked if his name was David Carpenter. I'm not knocking people with a speech impediment, don't get me wrong. Um, I read somewhere that the guy has an IQ of 125. I mean, that's a pretty high score. 
I'm just pointing out that when he's on the hunt and he thinks he's in control, his speech is slow and deliberate, but when he's out of his element, he can hardly say yes. So May 15th, he was, um, he was taken into custody, and 10 days later, uh, Heather Skaggs' body was found raped and murdered in the Big Basin Redwood State Park, um, which is above San Francisco. Uh, she was shot with the same pistol used on uh, Hartle and Hanson. The investigators never found any weapons, but finally they had a witness that remembered selling Mr. Creepy a 45 illegally. And then a short time later, a robbery suspect admitted he had bought a 38 revolver, uh, revolver from Mr. Creepy, and uh, the weapon tested positive when they, when they did the gunshot test on it, that it was the same weapon used on Hartle and Hanson and, and uh, Mrs. Skagg. So Mr. Creepy was, uh, he was cleared of being the, the Zodiac, but uh, a suspect of up to nine murders. In June 1980, Anna had, uh had been discovered dead in the, the Mount Tamalpius State Park. And, um, and it wasn't connected at the time to the trailside murders. But after learning of her association with Carpenter, this was all pretty much, uh, this was all too much to ignore, and her name was added to the list. He, I've read some things that said they were friends, and then some things said that she worked at a bank that he visited regularly and talked to her regularly. So I'm not sure how close they actually were, but they were definitely associated. In April 1984, after venue changed to Los Angeles, he was convicted of the Hanson and Skaggs murders, and July 6th, he was sentenced to die in the gas chamber at San Quentin. The judge told the court that the defendant's entire life has been a continuous expression of violence and force almost beyond expression. I must conclude with the prosecution that if there is ever a case appropriate for the death penalty, this is it. They, they, don't, they don't seem to do that in California. So May 10th, 1988, a San Diego jury convicted him on first-degree murder in the Richard Stowers and Cynthia Moreland case, the Shanna May, Diana O'Connell, and Ann Alderson cases. I guess that's that. No, wait, that's not it. He was also convicted of raping two women and an attempted rape of a third. So I guess that's it. No, 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 not yet. Hang on. Uh, December 2009, San Francisco Police Department re-examined the evidence from October 1979, the murder of Mary Bennett, who was attacked while jogging at Land's End. A DNA sample was submitted and matched to Carpenter, so they added another one to his list. Anyway, Mr. Creepy's uh, still a resident in San Quentin. He's 92 years old. Anyway, so that's the story of David Mr. Creepy Carpenter. Had lots of chances. So this is going to be the last installment of Tomb Raiders. I'm not even sure if I mentioned that in the last episode. I may have edited it out. I don't know. But I've been doing this series on Tomb Raiders. We did uh, Char the guys who stole Charlie Chaplin and asked for a ransom. We did uh, Burke and Hare, the guys that were supposed to be Tomb Raiders but are actually serial killers. And then we did uh, Anatoly Moskvin, the doll maker in Russia. This is going to be the final installment of Tomb Raiders, and it's going to kind of morph into something I'm going to call the American Original Series, which is this series is people who did create, I mean, crazy things, but unprecedented crimes. They had, I mean, they were just, they're original. 
That's really the only way I know how to put it. <laughs> and uh, this guy's definitely the perfect segue for that. And today we're talking about the one and only Ed Gein, in my opinion, the most fascinating criminal of all time. And um, my sources for this are the usual, the Wikipedia, Murderpedia, and several books. The Har Harold Schechter did a book called Deviant in 1989. And it is absolutely fantastic. I highly recommend it. I have it on Audible. Thinking about, he did this in 1989. It was before the internet got real big. So he had to do a lot of this by research and legwork and all. And it's just, it's an amazing book with an amazing amount of detail. And I recommend it to anybody who's interested in this kind of thing. And also I'm going to get this out of the way right, right from the get-go. Later on when he was going through his trials and and all he had a short a brief press press conference and the press asked him the proper pronunciation of his name and he said well some say gein he said we or i have always said gein he said i don't know it's about 50 50 so i'm gonna call him gein um all you german aficionados don't email me about it if you want to email me something email me a bigfoot story but don't email me on the proper pronunciation of his name because that's the way he pronounces it so i guess we're going to start right now kind of in the middle when ed's psychosis started to come to the light for the community of plainfield wisconsin so this this takes place in plainfield wisconsin for those of you that don't know i'm assuming most of you know if you're a true crime junkie like i am who ed gein is for those that don't know this takes place in uh, 1957 a very very rural part of wisconsin no big towns nearby it's just a, a barren landscape and a really really rough environment to be in uh, the farming was hard the living was hard and again this is in the 50s when they didn't have the same kind of things that we have now so on uh, november 17th 1957 uh, frank warden he was a, a town fire chief in uh, washara county Sheriff's deputy, Washara County, is where the town of Plainfield is at. Uh, he returned from the woods on opening day of deer season. He came back into town and went to Mashinsky Service Station is where they do the check-in on the, they do the deer check-ins. When somebody shoots a deer, it has to be weighed in and counted. The town also had a big buck contest, and he had a question because Mashinsky ran the, the uh, contest. So uh, he went into the station to ask him a question, and Mashinsky asked if uh, Frank's mother had decided to close the store for the day and to go deer hunting herself. And he told uh, he told Frank that he saw the warden. This was a sorry. This is Warden's Hardware Store. It was across the street from the service station. And he saw the warden hardware truck leave earlier in the day. And since then, the store had been locked up and hadn't seen his mother. And uh, so uh, Frank went across the street and. To take a look, the hardware store was was owned and ran primarily by his mother, Bernice. And he went over there to look, and the doors were all locked up and went around back. And sure enough, the panel truck was gone and the doors were locked, but the lights were on inside. So realizing he didn't have his store key on him, he ran home to get his key, came back to the store. Upon entering the store, he immediately knew something was wrong. There was a big red streak of red on the floor. The deputy recognized it as blood. And so he headed to the phone to call for help. 
Frank also noticed that the cash register was missing. Frank got on the phone and he dialed the Washara County Sheriff, Art Schley. Schley, hearing the concern in his deputy's voice, uh, he in turn contacted Arnie Fritz, who is his chief deputy, and the pair headed to Plainfield from their office in Watoma, about 15 miles away, I guess. When the two arrived, they walked in the back door of the store. Frank looked up and said, he's done something to her. And who asked Fritz? Eddie Gein responded, Frank. He's been hanging around here pestering my mother. He held up a receipt showing that Eddie Gein was in the store earlier and had bought some antifreeze. Now, earlier that same day, before this happened, the local farmer and timber man named Elmo Eek had shot a deer and the deer fell on Eddie Gein's property. Elmo strapped the deer to his the hood of his vehicle and headed into Plainfield. And on the way, he just happened to pass Eddie Gein driving in the other direction. And he waved to Eddie and Eddie just flung up his hand and waved and, and kind of flew by, which uh, Elmo thought that was extremely unusual for Eddie because usually Eddie drove so slow you could outrun him on a bicycle. But anyway, a little bit later on, Elmo felt bad because Eddie hated for people to hunt on his property. And uh, he wasn't feeling right about the whole situation. He decided he was going to go back to Eddie's and apologize about the deer. And he got to Eddie's house, and when he pulled up in the yard, Eddie was changing the tires on his car. He was taking off the snow tires and putting on regular tires. Now, for those of you who don't know, back in the day anyway, I don't know if they still do it or not because I don't live up north anymore. But I grew up up north, and my dad used to, at Thanksgiving, put snow tires on the car, and then he had to take them off at Easter. Eddie was taking off the snow tires and putting on his regular tires, which, um, you know, it's kind of an odd thing to do. Elmo thought it was odd anyway, and uh, especially with with snow on the ground and winter just beginning. But, you know, Eddie was uh, known as a local oddball, so he hadn't really attached too much to it. So the two chit-chatted for a little bit, and Elmo left Eddie to his business. And later on that afternoon, Eddie had another visitor, and uh, he came out of the house to greet them in the yard. And it was Eddie's neighbor, Bob Hill, and his sister, Darlene, came to ask Eddie. He said their car wouldn't start if he would take him into town to get a, a car battery. And Eddie, always willing to help out his neighbors, uh, said, sure. But his hands were all covered with blood from cleaning the deer is what he told the teens. He said, um, let me get washed up and I'll be right out. So they went into town and Eddie helped uh, Bob install the battery in the car. And Bob's mother, Irene Hill, asked Eddie to stay for dinner since he had done them such a huge favor. And Eddie, who had a very busy day, was grateful for the invite. And Irene set out a, a hearty dinner of pork chops and taters and macaroni and cheese and pickles and coffee and cookies. And Eddie dug in. And uh, after they finished up dinner, um, Eddie was sitting on the couch with the, uh, watching TV and in the room messing around with the younger kids uh, when the, the Hills son-in-law came in and uh, asked if uh, they knew what was going on in town. There seemed to be police everywhere and there's some kind of commotion going on. He said, well, somebody mentioned something about Bernice Warden had gone missing. So Bob Hill, being a 16-year-old teenager, he had to go see what was going on. He wanted to see what was going on in town. He had to know. He asked Eddie if Eddie would, would drive him into town. Eddie said, sure, I'd be happy to take you into town. So at the same time, 
Eddie was enjoying dinner back in Plainfield, Sheriff Art Schley and Arnie Fritz had called for help. So other sh uh, sheriffs from other communities, deputies, patrol officers, all showed up at the Plain Plainfield hardware store. And by 7 p.m., there was quite a lot of activity at the store. There's a uh, uh, sheriffs and officers from, from all over, like I said, had uh, Officer Dan Chase from right there in Plainfield, uh, Deputy Pokes Bees, uh, Deputy uh, Buck Bannerman, uh, Marshal Leon Speck Murdy, Sheriffs Wynerski, Searles, and Artie, and also uh, Captain Lloyd Schoforster from the Greene County uh, Sheriff's Department, and uh, along with um, Sheriff Schley and Arnie Fritz. So there is there is quite uh, quite a bit of uh, experienced people there. So they all kind of knocked their heads together and decided the first thing they needed to do is to find Eddie Gein. So back at the Hills house, Eddie and young Bob decided they were going to head into town and they went to get in Eddie's car and Bob's uh, mother, Irene, had said goodbye to Eddie and they ran a, they ran a, a grocery store and she headed over to the grocery store to relieve her husband, Lester, who was working the store while everyone else ate dinner. And Irene wasn't there long when two men came in, Officer Dan Chase and Deputy Poke Spees, asking for Eddie. And uh, Irene told the men that uh, Eddie was sitting in the driveway and left, unless he's already left. She explained that Eddie was uh, going to take her son into town to see what was going on. And the two men went to her driveway, and sure enough, Eddie's car was still sitting there running with the two fellows inside. And uh, Chase, Dan Chase, tapped on the window. And Eddie rolled the window down, and uh, Dan Chase said, Eddie, I'd like to talk to you. And Eddie readily cooperated and went and got and sat down in the squad car. So Chase asked Eddie so that, to tell me the events of the day from the time you woke up until right now. And Eddie went through the whole day, including when he visited Warden's Hardware Store. After Eddie finished the story, Chase asked him to run through it again, but this time start from where he visited Warden's Hardware Store. Eddie ran through his events again, and when he finished, Chase spoke up and said, Now, Eddie, you didn't tell the same story come through there that second time. And Eddie looked up and blinked and said, Somebody framed me. Framed you for what? asked Chase. Eddie said, For Mrs. Warden. Chase leaned in and said, What about Mrs. Warden? Well, she's dead, ain't she? Dead, exclaimed Chase. How do you know she's dead? Well, Eddie said, well, I heard them talk about it. Well, Chase was now convinced that something was very wrong. And he informed Eddie that he was being held as a suspect for the robbery at Warden's Hardware Store. Uh, Chase radioed uh, Sheriff Schley and, and told them that the suspect was in custody. And at that time, he pulled out, uh, pulled the squad car out of the hill's yard, leaving the hills in total bewilderment. So back in Plainfield, the law enforcement officers are now anxious to find Mrs. Warden. And the most logical place to start looking was at Eddie Gein's house. Sheriff Archley and uh, Captain Lloyd Schoforster uh, got in the Archley's car and they headed west out of town towards the Gein farm. So we have quite a lot to get into with this one. As you can see, it just getting started. I'm going to Hit the pause on it for right now and we'll get back to it uh, in the next episode.
I swore up and down when I started this podcast I wasn't going to do a two-parter, but eh, here we are. I am going to do one quick news story, though, just because I thought this was really funny. The naked Georgia man who stole an ambulance and took the vehicle out for a drive on Friday was taken into custody, according to officials. The man, who is later identified as Bradley Jermaine Baker, 48, is suspected of having been under the influence of narcotics. The residents noticed the ambulance moving aggressively without its headlights turned on near Mercer University Drive in Macon. This is in Georgia. The Bibb County Sheriff's Office said, um, deputies said the ambulance was also spotted doing burnouts. <laughs> spotted doing burnouts in a parking lot. Deputies responded to the scene, but the driver would not stop the ambulance, leading to a short pursuit. The man eventually ditched the ambulance and attempted to flee deputies on foot. Deputies said he, they arrested him around Eisenhower Parkway. It's like, seriously, dude, you're, you're going to outrun the cops naked and barefooted. <laughs> Uh, Baker had active warrants out of Bibb in Douglas counties, and now he's charged with um, driving while his license, license is suspended or revoked, driving under the influence of drugs, probation violation, public indecency, fleeing or attempting to elude police officer for a felony offense, and theft by taking, and he was booked into the Bibb County Jail and is being held without bond. So there you go. Lesson to all you young fellers out there: don't get naked, take drugs, and steal an ambulance. So that's the show. Um, hopefully, the next episode won't take too long to get out, and uh, we'll keep uh, moving along with the uh, Eddie Gein story. So I hope you all have a good week. Um, take care of yourselves, and uh, you dads out there, hit pause on the game and read to your kids for 15 minutes. It'll mean the world to them. Thank you all.